But this morning, um, as you listen to, to Ryan read our passage, we're going to touch on a sensitive issue. And that issue is temptations. And I say it's sensitive because it seems like the temptations we, we each individually deal with are temptations that are usually connected to some deep longing we have, some kind of uh, message of shame that we hear all the time, or even connected to things that happened to us in the past. These temptations um, are connected to different shame and guilt that we feel a lot of times. For example, the temptation to lust that's launched upon us in conjunction with guilt, a lot of times comes from a past um, a past time of guilt when we've seen the destruction of a certain addiction and how it has occurred in different relationships. Well, it brings up memories that, well, things we've done in the past or things that were done to us. And that temptation comes with that shame and that guilt. Or uh, another case, the temptation to, to gossip about someone is to kind of tear them down to other people. A lot of times... That, that, that temptation is packaged with the shame of not feeling like you're, you're enough, like not feeling like you're attractive enough, or you're not popular enough, you're not very likable. And this temptation is packaged within this as it continues to, to tempt you and to lure and entice you. So that's why I say that temptation is a, a sensitive topic because it usually is interwoven with shame and different deep longings that we have. And that's why temptation is so difficult. And this doesn't even touch on the, the relational consequences that go that jumping into the temptation, how it, it plays out in our relationships, and then the shame, the guilt that just piles on our already weighted down conscience. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about, temptation. And I've got great news for you and me. And that's exactly what we see in this passage, is that Jesus Christ has already successfully overcome temptation. He's already done it. He was victorious, and in him we have victory. Not only that, but Jesus' victory means that we can have victory over these temptations as well. And those are the two things we're going to see this morning. Number one is the victory of Christ over temptation. And then number two is your victory, Christian, over temptation. And those are the two things we're looking at today. And so if you have not already, open up your Bible to Luke 4. And if you do not have a Bible or on your phone, there's one right in front of you in the pew, and it'll be on page 807 if you use one of those Bibles. So this first part is looking at Jesus's victory over temptation. And we're going to look through this text and see how Jesus's victory over temptation leads to our salvation. So uh, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I I can't help but chuckle. Like That was probably the most obvious statement in the whole Bible. He didn't eat for 40 days and he was hungry. Some of us are like, I have never related so much with Scripture. (laughs) Yes, he was hungry. No, so we see here that he's returning from the Jordan. Uh, he's returning from the Jordan. We see that this is right after his baptism. 
right after this magnificent event, when the Holy Spirit ascended or descended onto Jesus, this uh, this event where Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus was baptized, and God the Father spoke to Jesus. Right after this, Jesus comes, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, or as we work through chapter 1, 2, 3, we see that the Holy Spirit is everywhere in these chapters. We've already seen John the Baptist filled with the Spirit. We've seen Elizabeth filled with the Spirit. We've seen Zechariah filled with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's everywhere. And it'll continue because Luke really emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. And what this means, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, literally it means to be permeated thoroughly or to be saturated with the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be controlled by and submissive to the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is commanded to believers in Ephesians 5, 18. And we've touched on this a little bit back in Galatians. Walk by the Spirit is very similar to be filled with the Spirit, if not the same. And we touched on that a little bit when we're going through Galatians chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit. But so we see Jesus, full of the Spirit, completely controlled by the Spirit. And what does that mean? He's led by the Spirit. You see that right in the beginning, the first one. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And this brings a very important distinction I want to make right away. Is the distinction between temptation and sin. Temptation does not equate to sin. It for sure can lead to sin, but it does not have to. God the Son was led by God the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted according to the will of God the Father. God cannot sin. Jesus did not sin. Therefore, temptation is not sin. That's an important distinction. Why? Because Satan, as uh, the liar, as the deceiver, is very good at guilting Christians for just being tempted or experiencing temptation. Uh, For example, and and I assume we've all experienced this. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just thinking about myself, but I'm going to take the leap that we've all experienced this. Uh, You're driving. A good-looking lady with barely any clothes on is walking or jogging on the side of the road. And you are tempted to stare. You're tempted to to continue to look. That temptation in of itself is not wrong. It turns evil and sinful when you take that second look, when you continue to stare, when you begin to fantasize. Or another example, you go to a friend's house. You walk in, they've got everything perfect. They've got super nice friendship. They've got the best accessories. In fact, you saw the best car as you walked in. Their family just seems perfect. You see all their clothes. You're overwhelmed, and you are tempted to be discontent and to be jealous and envious. That temptation that you're experiencing in of itself is not wrong. It turns wrong when you begin allowing these thoughts come into your mind that, you know what, I should have this. You know what? I'm a little angry and bitter that I don't have this, that God has not given this to me. In fact, I'm starting to hate that person for having it. That is when it becomes sinful. So the the distinction I'm making is temptation does not equate to sin, but do make no mistake, sin is incredibly evil and wrong, and that's clear. But temptation is not. And I say that because Satan, like I said, is very good at lobbing temptation after temptation at us. And then as we experience this, and even if we are obedient and we're, if we're resisting, 
he will condemn us and shame us. How could you? If you're a good Christian, you would not have felt that, that temptation. You would not have, have had this going through your mind. And that's wrong. So there's a distinction between temptation and sin. And we should, kind of sign up, we should expect this temptation. We should expect many temptations every single day. We should expect it, plan on it. If your day is not full of temptations you experience, you should check yourself. Because there's a good chance you may your conscience may be seared and you just may be so used to just automatically giving in. If you're trying to live a life for God and obey him at work, at your home, uh, at, at, in the church here, you will be resisted. And so if we're not having some kind of resistance, there's probably something wrong and that we're just giving in. But so we see Jesus is led by God the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And this wilderness of Judea that he's, he's referring to, uh, it's full of cliffs, ravines, there's boulders everywhere. It's so rough that no animals can pass through there. There's no sheep, no cattle. It's like a barren land. It's not a good place at all. So Jesus goes there. And when you hear wilderness for 40 days, what can you kind of hear? You can hear like almost an echo, right? Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. There's a clear echo of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. But now we have Jesus in the wilderness for 40, 40 days. And this is it's big because it's a reversal of what's going on here. Israel, if you remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure to trust God and enter the promised land in the first place. And then when we, they get to the promised land after the 40 years, they then will continue to fail as they're in the promised land. They will fail. But we see here in this passage, Jesus is victorious. Israel, they failed. Jesus is victorious here. So he's going into the wilderness. He's being led by the Spirit. He's there for 40 days, and he's being tempted by the devil. He's tempted. And don't breeze by this and think, well, no big deal. I mean, he's God. And we'll, this isn't that big deal. It's like, okay, whatever, moving on. But it's not. He's very like us in that he feels the, the real load of the, the temptation, but he's very unlike us in the sense that he does not give in. And as all of us have experienced, when you continue to resist that temptation, a lot of times it just builds and it builds and it builds and it starts to become overwhelming. Jesus never gave in. If you can imagine that, that force that just grows and grows. And we read these specific three temptations after 40 days of temptations. But there's these three that are, that are singled out. He's tempted by the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, the adversary, the highest of all God's creation, the highest angel. Uh, one pastor describes Satan as, uh, from the Bible, a liar, a murderer, a dragon, a snake, the accuser, the evil one, the god of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, the prince of power of the air, a roaring lion, and the tempter. The being that successfully lured Adam and Eve into sin and thus, and thus damning all of humanity. That was Satan. And now he attempts in our passage to tempt and destroy the second Adam, Jesus. And you and I are absolutely no match for Satan. Absolutely no match. 
But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First John. It's because of Jesus Christ. And so we get this, all right? So I'm trying to build this up here. So Jesus is tempted by the devil. And I assume, and I know, I should assume, I said, I, I know this because scripture tells us this, that all of us can relate with Jesus at this point. We've all been tempted. This morning, uh, no question, this morning we've been tempted by something. This experience of temptation we all can relate with. James describes it this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Being lured and enticed by a powerful desire. It's like a, a contending sense of both anxiety and power. Let me ex- explain it. Um, it's like when you're at a great height, right? Whether you're working on uh, AJ's deck, which seems to be 100 yards off the ground, or you're on some kind of like a Grand Canyon or somewhere, you're looking down, even from a building, you're looking down, you're like, yup, that's pretty high. But you've got this desire within you to jump, right? Does anyone else experience like Man, I'm kind of tempted to jump here. But then you also have this, this feeling and fear of, but I know what the consequences are. But yet there's this tempting to jump, right? And at that moment, you've got this, this, this grasp on this power of life and death. I could jump. I could really jump and die, but also could not. In the same way, when temptation arises, you're tempted to give in. But yet you fear the shame, the guilt, and the consequences. But you're tempted to give in. And you have within your grasp life and death. This this contending anxiety and power, this experience of temptation. And Jesus is having this from Satan himself. Satan is doing this to Jesus. Right? And and at the end there, as we kind of, or at least I laughed, uh, he ate nothing and he was hungry. Yep, yep, I get that. And it's it's interesting. We see this in verse 13 that Satan and his his cronies, the demons, they come at opportune times. Uh, a former teacher of mine used to say, do not make big decisions during these times. And he used an acronym HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Do not make decisions while you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Jesus is hungry. When I'm hungry... As Casey, it's usually not a fun time in the show hustle. Because I get irritable very easily. We also see not only is Jesus hungry, but this comes right after he's baptized. And God the Father speaks to him and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Right after a spiritual high, if I could say that. And it seems like we go as low emotionally as we have gone high. It just seems naturally that we have a huge emotional experience. Everything's great. Usually, just naturally, our, our emotions go as low. It's an opportune time to be tempted. And we, so we see this at the same moment. Jesus comes right after being baptized, and he is hungry. That's when Satan comes during these three. And so we see, verse 3, the devil set him. So that's, the, that's what's going on here. The devil comes and says to him, if you are the son of God, Command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil says to him, right? And we've experienced this. Let me explain it this way. Uh, we know what this is referring to. I mean, the devil, he's not omnipresent like God, but he's got many demons. He's got many demons. So most likely when we are tempted, it's not by Satan himself. Very unlikely. But it's definitely by one of his demons. 
And they use our flesh, our sinful nature, and they use the world, which is just full of temptations, of billboards, commercials, everywhere, to lust, to, to be envious. I want that. To be discontent. Everywhere, they use the world and the flesh. And it's a battle within our minds, right? The devil spoke to Jesus. We hear these messages. It's usually cloaked in our own words, our own voice, if I can say that. Our thinking is cloaked in there. And we hear this. It's almost like with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say, Jesus? Did God really say, Alex? And it's a real battle. Paul tells us, Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's very real. And what does Satan say? He says, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And the, the grammar indicates here that Satan is not doubting that Jesus is the son of God. The It can actually be uh, translated, since you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. That's more what it means. And it's interesting, that's right in line with everything we see in the New Testament, because nowhere ever the same or the demons question Jesus' deity. Rather, they fear. When Jesus casts them out, they're scared because they know who Jesus is. They know who he is. In fact, James says that the demons believe and they shudder. They know who Jesus is. So James is not questioning Jesus' uh, deity or who he is. Rather, he's subtle. Deception comes by a mixture of truth and error. It's never just blatant error. Very rarely, it's always a mixture. So it's so much easier to, to, to swallow if there's some truth but then there's some air underneath. So he says, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God. Why, why has not God, your father, provided any food? You're hungry, man. You've been in for 40 days. What's going on here? And so we have a temptation to doubt God's love. He says, turn a stone into bread. And so what's wrong with this? What is wrong if Jesus actually did this? I mean, he's God. He could have done this. What would have been wrong if he would have turned the stone into bread because he's hungry? Uh, a few things. And we get this, uh, a strong indica- indication from Jesus' response. All three of the verses that Jesus responds with is quoted from Deuteronomy. A lot from Deuteronomy 6. And this is during a time, if you remember, Israel has been promised by God that God will provide. And he has been with water, with manna. He's been providing and then Deuteronomy is right before they go into the promised land. And Moses tells them, do not doubt God's goodness. Do not doubt him. And Jesus quotes from this as he responds back to Satan. And so this temptation is to doubt God's promise and his goodness. Satan was aware, and this actually is laid out in uh, Philippians 2, a little earlier before Keith uh, was reading there. In Philippians 2, and Satan was aware that Jesus, when he... In the incarnation, when he became man, he gave up his independent use of his divine power. He took, he became man. He gave that up for that time. So he depended on the Holy Spirit. He obeyed the Father's will. He did that, and Satan knew that. So Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt the love and the provision of God, and if, as if God was indifferent, as if. God didn't care what Jesus was going through. Does that not sound familiar? 
maybe what we hear, what you hear is perhaps Alex, perhaps AJ, perhaps Keith, uh, Bob, perhaps God has abandoned you during the season. Perhaps the struggle with your health, with your marriage, with your kids, with finances, with depression, anxiety, perhaps God has abandoned you and has forgotten about you. He's moved on to more important people. Perhaps he has. I mean, if God loved you, surely he wouldn't bring you through this. So we get this, Jesus is tempted, which we can definitely experience, this temptation of doubting God's love and provision. And Jesus answers with God's word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. That Jesus preaches to Satan and to himself. No, going outside of God's will, even to fulfill a legitimate desire, is sin and it won't bring life. He says, no. He preaches the word to Satan and to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've quoted him before, a very well-known preacher um, in the last century. And he called it preaching the truth to yourself, preaching to yourself. When you hear that from Satan, hey, look and you'll be satisfied. Say it and you'll be popular. Uh, Do it and you will be fulfilled. When we hear that from Satan, to preach the truth, no. That is not true. God says to flee this because it will destroy me and my family. He says, no, saying that will be sin. It will hurt the person that I'm talking against. And no, I'll feel just as empty now as I, if I do, if I do jump into it, and, but with guilt. And so Jesus preaches the word. He overcomes that first temptation. But then Satan tries again, right? Temptation number two, he moves on. And we've all experienced it. You resist this particular temptation and totally expect it. Right afterwards or soon after, the same temptation to a different degree will come up or a different temptation to, for anger, to bitterness, it will come up. See, it will continue. So moving on here, verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So uh, Satan shows him all the kingdoms. So either this is a, a vision of all the kingdoms, or somehow they're seeing what they can see, and it's representative of all the kingdoms. And Satan says, Hey, I'll give this, all this to you. I mean, it's been delivered to me, and I give authority to you, whomever I will. Uh, this is a mixture of truth and lie. Yes, he wields a major power in the world as it's a fallen world. He's the prince of the power of the air, as the Bible explains. And because of sin, he rules this worldly system. But he does not have this power or authority. God is the one who's ultimately in control, who's sovereign, who limits what Satan can do. Just look at Job. Um, Satan was limited what he could do to Job because of what God said. And so Satan lies here, but he says... And here's the temptation. He says, if you worship me, it will all be yours. And the temptation is to doubt God's plan and do it your own way. Listen. This power, this authority, this glory that Satan offers, it has already been promised to Jesus by God in Psalm 2, Daniel 7, 14. We've looked at this uh, throughout our study of Luke. 
But all this has already been promised to Jesus. But it comes through the cross. It will come through suffering. And then you've got Satan coming, bringing a real temptation that we face today. Hey, what God promises you, I'll give you right now. I'll give you right now. And there will be no suffering. There will be no abandonment. There will be no rejection. Just worship me. Skip the cross. Skip it. There'll be no suffering. Just do what. Just follow me. Just obey me. And don't we struggle with this? We've got incredible promises from God. Uh, I keep on bringing up Keith. As Keith preached back a few weeks ago in Peter, we've got incredible promises of God. But we are so tempted to not wait to confidently expect from God to 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 answer or fulfill these promises. Rather. We want to accomplish it ourselves. We want it now, just in gratification, and we don't want any suffering. We want it now. That's the temptation. Uh, a clear example, Abraham, right? He's promised the son. He's promised the son, but it takes a long time before that happens. No doubt, every year that passes, Abraham and Sarah are doubting, well, we're just getting older and older and older. No son is coming. And we feel the shame from all our neighbors that we still don't have any son. And so they take it into their own hands, and he tries to have a kid through Hagar. He does it his own way, not God's way. He tries to fulfill that desire now. So that's the temptation. But Jesus responds with, it is written. Deuteronomy 6.13, he refers to God alone is worthy of allegiance. God alone is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. God alone. God's plan is good. That's what Jesus is responding with. Uh, coming back to Job, he loses his wealth, he loses his cattle, his, I think his camels, it's listening there, his sheep probably listening there, he loses all of his kids, he loses his health, and he begins to doubt God's goodness and his plan. God appears later in Job, and how does God answer? Job, I am God, I am good, therefore trust me. He doesn't give Job an answer of, like, hey, this is why I'm doing this, this, this. But rather, I'm God. If you recall uh, God's saying stuff to Job, like, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you when I had the eagle glide and I created that way? Where were you when I created the system of water or precipitation? All that custom. Where were you, Job? God is saying, I'm God. You can trust me, Job. And so Jesus says, God alone is worthy of trust. And this temptation that Jesus faces of doubting God's plan is so irrelevant, especially when we're in hard circumstances, isn't it? I mean, come on. It's so easy. Like, man, maybe God doesn't have the best for me. Especially when it's been marked after uh, depression, after frustration and disappointment, one right after the other. And we have to hold on to Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Trust in God. And then comes temptation number three. Verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, we've heard that before, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not be your Lord, your God, to the test. And if you recall, um, Matthew also 
lists this account of Jesus being tempted, but he switches number two and three. They switch it. And that's clearly by their purpose. Matthew's being chronological. Luke is being thematic, meaning he's, he's picking up this theme. Uh, Luke has the second temptation in Matthew's account as the final tempta- temptation, the climax, because it's in Jerusalem, and the climax of Jesus on earth is going to be in, in Jerusalem. So that's why he, he switched that way. Totally uh, his purpose in doing that. But so we get this. He, Satan brings Jesus to the temple, and this is a high point. Like uh, I can't even tell you. It's over 100 feet tall. So it's unquestioned that if Jesus jumps and God the Father does not step in, he's going to be dead. What would be wrong with this? What would be wrong if Jesus jumped? Especially with these promises that the angels would protect him. It's because it's presuming upon God. It's forcing God to act. Therefore, it is making God serve him or God to serve you. It's testing God, testing his his care, his promises. It's basically forcing God's hand, forcing him on your terms. As if you're the one that can decide these things. And God has to come on your terms. But then Jesus says, for it is written. No, 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 no. It's Satan that says this, right? He says, for it is written, Jesus. Like, do you not remember Psalm 91, 11 through 12? That's what he quotes. Do you not recall this, Jesus? I mean, it's promised. The angel will come to protect you. Satan knows scripture far more than me and you. Far more. He knows it far more. And he will distort it and use it against you and me. And this is why you need to know God's word. I need to know God's word. We need to have a good theological, uh, systematic theology. We need to. And let me say this. Every single person in this room is a theologian. No exception. No question. The only question is if you're a good one or a bad one. That's the only question. If you're an accurate one or an unaccurate one. Inaccurate, whatever the word is. But you are a theologian. So we need to know God's word. We need to know it so that we're not duped by some misinterpretation, some misapplication, or ripping it out of context. So Satan has Jesus on this temple. Either, in Satan's mind, Jesus is going to jump, he's going to fall, he's going to die, therefore he's not going to go to the cross, and therefore he's not going to be the substitute for you and me and for sin. Or Satan will get Jesus to force God the Father and jump, And then the angels will come and protect him. Therefore, Jesus will cease to be in submission to God's plan and his will. And therefore, sin. So it seems like, I don't know. Here we go. Either way, I win. He dies, or if he gets saved, I win either way. Jesus responds from Deuteronomy 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 16. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In this verse that he, he he takes it from, Deuteronomy 6, in that original context, is when God's telling the Israelites, as they enter the promised land, do not test me like you did previously in Massons. Do not test me like you did. So this is clearly referring to that. Let me bring that a little more closer to home, because I think it could be a little far out. Listen to this. One pastor says this. This type of temptation is perhaps the most subtle and dangerous of the three because it seemingly encourages people to exercise faith in God. In reality, it arrogantly, brazenly demands things from God. 
turning him into a utilitarian genie who grants people's every whim. The false view of faith promoted in the most extreme form by the so-called prosperity gospel in essence makes man sovereign. If the right formula is used, God has to respond. It's forcing God. It's presuming upon God. Make him serve me in this way. But true faith submits to God's will and obeys. It does not presume upon or demand God's response. So we have Jesus overcome with these three temptations, and it ends with verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, can you, can you imagine this? He's just lobbed of things. And Jesus overcomes it all, says he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. We'll see throughout the gospel that, that Satan is continuing to, to attack him and have a force on him, but it really increases again at the end in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we've seen before. That's when it comes back uh, at the strongest. But what we get from this is that Jesus is victorious. Jesus was perfect. He was completely righteous. Israel couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Elijah couldn't do it. Isaiah couldn't do it. Jeremiah couldn't do it. Uh, King David could not do it. On and on we go. They could not, could not, could not. And then Jesus did. What does that mean for you and me? The standard of perfection that is laid on your back has been taken up and laid on another's, Jesus Christ. And he was perfect. So that through faith in him, you can have his perfection and all the blessings that go with him. Praise God. Amen? Israel did not do it. But Jesus Christ did. He went in that wilderness 40 days, representative of Israel for 40 years, and he did it. Adam, he was in the garden, could not do it. But Jesus did in the wilderness. Amen? All right, with the, the few minutes we have left, let me bring this a little more home. Let's talk about your uh, victory over your temptation. Here we go. So Jesus resisted temptation. I'm going to go quick. Can you follow with me? Sometimes I get yelled at by other people. But moving on. Jesus resisted temptation for your salvation. He also resisted temptation to work out the victory in you right now. He did it for the victory of your salvation, and he did it for the victory to be worked out in your life in the present day today. Jesus has come for salvation and renewal today. The gospel is not only, I'm I'm emphasizing, is not only Get saved, survive for the next few decades or so you have your life, and then go to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's not what we read. It is for sure part of the gospel. We also see be justified through faith in Christ alone. Now be sanctified. Be made holy. Resist temptation. We see that all throughout. So don't, don't look over. Yes, we're victorious in Christ. We are victorious in Christ. But he also wants to work out that victory in you today, tomorrow, this week when the temptations come up. And so Jesus resists the temptation to work out the victory in you today, right? And this uh, this statement by God's word isn't some superficial or frivolous statement. Like, yay, victory. Like, it's serious. That temptation that bogs you down day after day, you can have victory over. You can have grown victory in Christ. And I'm sure that as we've been going talking this morning, those temptations you deal with, that you struggle with, that seem only almost automatic, almost like an addiction, I'm sure that's been in your mind 
as we talk about this. If not, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring it to your mind, to my mind, the temptations that we just struggle so much with. Because God's word, the gospel says, you can have growing victory over that temptation today. You can. And so let me give you four action steps we see in this passage. Four action steps. And they'll be relatively quick. So here we go. Number one, believe and consider your victorious position in Christ. Believe and consider your, your victorious position in Christ. And that's exactly the whole thing of this. Jesus has already won the victory. He has won the victory for his people. You may lose the battle today. But God has won the war. Jesus Christ is victorious. Um, and then Romans 6, this is what Paul states it. He says this. Or in Romans 6, he talks about how we're free from sin in Christ. Then he says this, verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or some passages, which I, I kind of like a little more, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Reckon. Consider this position. Consider the truth. Reckon it true. Reason from it. Count it true. Live from this truth. Believe it is true. This is all what that means. It's like reckoning you're married, which for those who are married, you better reckon that you're married. We reckon we're married, and then we live from that truth, right? You live as if you're married, because if you are, you're married, right? In the same way, live, reckon that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Literally, live that out. It's true. You're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ. Now live it out. Live from that truth. That's what it means. Consider your victorious position. Reckon it and go on. Uh, another point I want to make on this, a sub-point. I know, I go points all over the place. But this is grace-motivated because it's grace that won us this, this position. It's all by grace. Uh, I quote Martin Luther right, right, a lot, right? Uh, you hear Martin Luther. I think he's a really cool dude. Uh, yep, he's a cool dude. I said that. Horrible adjectives. But his last words were this. His very last words before he died, he said this. We are beggars. This is true. His last words. We are beggars. This is true. What does he mean? We are beggars of grace. We are beggars of God's grace. We need God's grace. And everything we do, we are beggars of God's grace. Every time we face that temptation, we are begging for grace. God, give me grace. And the, the good news is that God is a gracious and he's joyful in giving grace. We are beggars of grace. We have a victorious position in Christ, won by grace. So believe and consider and reckon from this victorious position. That's number one. Number two, from this we see uh, clearly with Jesus how he responds. Slay the temptation with God's word, right? Slay the temptation with God's word. Or Paul says in Ephesians 6, unsheath that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and take it on. That's our, our only weapon, is God's word. Jesus responds every single time with God's word. He didn't dance with the temptations. He didn't take time to consider. He didn't dabble a little bit, right? I mean, sometimes, if we're honest, we flirt with the temptation a little bit. Like, hey, how's it going, right? We flirt with it. We go down the slide a little bit. Soon, temptation is blurred with sin. And then, oh, I guess I'm sinning. We flirt with it. Jesus, no. 
He said, this is the truth. This is God's word. That's it. Let's move on. And so we see the power and the definitiveness of God's word. Preach it to yourself. Preach the truth to yourself. Unsheath the sword of God's word. Number three, trust God. And I, I wrote that, and I tried really hard to figure out a synonym or a synonymous phrase because that seems so like, yeah, I've heard that before, right? Like, anyone else? So I was really working, okay, what can I put there instead of something that we can easily look over? But I couldn't find anything. Trust God. Because in all these temptations, Jesus trusted God the Father. He trusted that God will provide for him and is providing for him even though he was hungry at that time. He trusted that God's plan, although full of suffering and the hardest thing in all the universe was coming up and Jesus knew it, although that was, he trusted that he was not abandoned and rejected by God, but God was still with him. And he trusted God's will and his goodness and his steadfast love rather than make demands from God. So all three of them, he trusted God. I mean, it brings us back to the Garden of Eden again, right? With Eve, Satan. And Eve began to doubt that God had her best in mind. She looks, and yep, the fruit is good to the eyes. It looks good to the, to the taste. And she began to believe that God was holding out on her. Like, hey, Eve, you, you're actually hurting yourself by not giving it. I mean, don't you want that desire fulfilled and satisfied right now? And she began to feel that overwhelming desire for fruit and deemed it to bring more fulfillment than what God has promised. But trust God. Do not doubt in the dark what God has taught you in the light. Trust his love, his plan, his goodness. That's number three. Last one, number four. Do not willingly place your head on the guillotine. Do not willingly place your head on the guillotine. Or maybe a better way to say it, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, Romans 6, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Or, in other words, again, do not set yourself up to fail. Do not set yourself up to fail. Do not put your head down on the guilty and say, all right, let's do it. Stop putting yourself on that slippery slope, and then playing dumb, as we all have, we play these games, playing dumb, as we inch down the, the slide, right? A little more. Oh, here we go. I, I haven't slid down yet, but I'm getting closer. Oh, and then we get taken, and then we act dumb, like, well, I resisted really hard when, in fact, we're the ones that jumped up on the slide, and we began inching down it, but then we were taken down. As if that was, we tried hard. But Paul says, do not present yourselves your members to unrighteousness, rather present them to God. Don't set yourself up to fail. Jesus, he was full of the Spirit, meaning he was controlled by the Spirit, he was submitting to the Spirit, he set himself up for victory. And with this comes the that the opportune times that sin will take. So don't put yourself in circumstances that sets you up to fail. Stop surfing the internet when you're very lonely or deeply hurt. Stop talking to that other guy when you just got off the phone fighting with your husband and you feel unwanted. Stop reading those soft porno pornographic novels that describe every move of his hand. Stop setting yourself up to fail. Stop presenting your members as instruments of righteousness, but rather to God. So do not willingly place your head in the guillotine. 
rather place your head focused on what is right. So those are the four action steps we see from this passage, from the example of Christ. And let me let me try to get ahead of a few possible thoughts coming from this, and we're going to end with this. You may be thinking. Shrugging this off, like, hey, those are just little temptations. Uh, I mean, it's no real big deal. It hasn't really hurt my wife. It hasn't really hurt my husband. It hasn't really hurt my kids. It hasn't really hurt me at work. But the exact opposite is true. Sin hardens our hearts. It will affect everything. Uh, a former teacher of mine, he... He would, every now and then, he would preach or teach at the county jail. And he told me once, uh, I'm not sure if it was all, all the time, but one of the times he was able to sit down with some inmates and talk to them. And he found out and realized that the vast majority of the inmates in the prison were there because of five minutes. They were in that prison because they made the wrong decision in five minutes. Oh, well, that's it. One decision for one, in five minutes they were in there for years. Do not, do not think that sick doesn't know that all he needs is five minutes to destroy your marriage. All he needs is five minutes to destroy your kids. That's all he needs, five minutes. So don't overlook these temptations. Another way of thinking I want to cut off is to hear these four points and to be a little disappointed and begin to scoff because, well, they seem simplistic, right? They seem simplistic. Yeah, trust God. Yep, I got that. And I want to give a word of caution. I'm with you. They sound simplistic. They sound almost frivolous. But these are the actions that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, took, and he was victorious. These are the actions that we are commanded to do. The reason that you and I are not victorious over that temptation that enslaves us because we're not doing this part. We give up too easily. We're not actually trusting in Christ that God has His has our best in mind. We're on the performance treadmill. We don't really think that we had that victorious position. So this is a call for you and me to get off that performance treadmill and to really believe that Jesus is for us, that we are completely justified and made right in Christ. It is a call for you and me to open up our Bibles and systematically learn and research what God says about that temptation, about lust, gossip, envy, and so on. It's a call for you and me to stop looking and setting us up to fail by looking at our phones at night to stop that conversation before it begins talking about others. It's a call for us to actually obey these four that God lays out here. And the last possible way to think I want to cut off is that if you're hearing this and you're incredibly discouraged because you think about this morning, you think about this past week, this past month, past year, past years, and you're like, wow, it is just marked by failure and failure and falling into temptation, and you're just overwhelmed with guilt, and you're just really struggling, take courage that there is a struggle. There should be a struggle. If there wasn't a struggle, that almost means that you're just giving in. So praise God that there is a struggle, that you are struggling against sin, that you are struggling against that temptation. 
And praise God that in Christ we have victory. In Christ we are forgiven. We're completely forgiven. Amen? Don't doubt in the dark when those temptations come what God has taught me in the light. And do not forget that Jesus has paid it all. He has won the victory. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. And we can reckon from that. Let's pray for Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and, and not leaving us blind and in what to do or what to know. Lord, thank you, God. Lord, just thank you that we, I fail, we all fail, and we've got those temptations in mind, and we are just ever grateful that you are the one that was perfect. You have won us victory. Victory itself is not dependent on us, and we are so thankful for that. God, may that be driven in our minds as we fight in our marriages, as we get upset and yell at our kids, as we uh, talk back to our, our parents, as we doubt what is good. Lord, remind us that Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. Help us to live from that truth. And to have victory right now, today, over those temptations. Lord, we, we praise you and we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.